I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H, Y Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, Professor Ian Lustig, author of Paradigm Lost, from Two-State Solution to One-State Reality returns to discuss his Time Magazine op-ed, History Tells Us How the Israel-Hamas War Will End. It's a fascinating conversation that will have us delving into previous Israeli wars and the trajectory of Zionist and Israeli thought over the years. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Ian S. Lustig. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy having on. Uh, he's almost become a semi-regular on uh, segments of this show. Uh, Professor Ian Lustig is the author of Paradigm Lost, From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. And he also recently wrote a piece in Time Magazine that'll be the basis for the bulk of our discussion, entitled History Tells Us How the Israel-Hamas War Will End. Uh, how are you doing, Ian? I'm doing fine, more or less, considering the times we're living in. One thing I want to get uh, out of the way right off the bat, because I, I want you to be able to clarify it for my listeners. Uh, I think some of my listeners have been confused in the past as to where you stand on you know, the two-state solution versus the one-state solution. And I think people have confused your talking about a one-state reality with believing in a one-democratic state solution. I My understanding is that you 
don't have like the be all end all solution to all of this. Maybe you can clarify for my listeners, though. I, I will be glad to, or I will try, because what I have found to my surprise is that this particular point that you're raising and that people have difficulty with is one of the biggest surprises to me. It seems I'm making what I thought was a pretty clear and almost obvious point, and that is that when one talks about a solution, one doesn't mean just a pretty picture. We can think, I can think, of many, many pretty pictures of the future. They could involve two states. They could involve one democratic state. They could involve a confederation. They could involve uh, cantonal arrangements. They could involve a regional uh, community. They could involve world government. Any number of pretty pictures of the future, by which I mean much the problems associated with those pictures are much preferable to the problems we have today. So I can imagine these pretty pictures, and many of them I can even imagine as satisfying what I think the minimum requirements are for both Palestinians and Israelis. But that ability to imagine something is not a solution. It's just a pretty picture. A solution is when you have a pretty picture in your mind that is something that promises a better set of problems than you have today, but you know how to get there. You have an act like... If think of solving an equation in algebra, you have to actually show how you do it. You can't just say, oh, I imagine that can be solved. You have to actually do it. So without a plan for getting to a pretty picture, all you have is the pretty picture. You don't have a solution. Now, in the past, from the early 70s to, I'd say, the early aughts, I believed that it was plausible enough for political processes that I could well imagine taking place that would lead to two viable states, a Jewish one and a Palestinian one in the same country, separate states. Therefore, I considered that there was a solution and I was advocating it, a two-state solution. Now that's just a pretty picture because it's been years, almost decades, since I've been able to imagine the political steps that could plausibly lead to it. Not only have I not been able to imagine it, I don't know a single person who in the last five or 10 years has been willing to lay out a scenario that they consider politically plausible that would lead to it. Therefore, I do not see the two-state future as a solution anymore, even though it's a pretty picture. And I think the same thing is true of a one-state picture. A one-democratic state picture is pretty. But I don't know how to get there through negotiations or political process. Now, the reason people feel confused, I think, is that I do when I so what I say is we have a one state reality. It's not a pretty picture it says, for anybody. It's a lousy picture. So it's a miserable picture, but it is a reality. So that contradicts the idea that a one state is impossible. We still don't know if one democratic state is possible, but one state is possible because we have it now from the river to the sea. It's just not democratic. It's partially democratic. And the question I raise is, if you think of other countries that have been non-democratic or partially democratic states that involve large populations that have been stigmatized and, and excluded from politics for generations, Blacks in America or uh, or Blacks in South Africa, the Irish Catholics in Britain, 
how do those states change? Can they democratize? And the answer is yes, they can. They don't always do. And it takes a very long time. And it's worth looking at the processes that occur that turn Jim Crow into a multicultural democracy, however flawed that may be. So there are dynamics in a one-state reality. They will lead to places that people involved in that reality do not intend them to go. And that's where we are. I'm interested in working within the one-state reality, not guided in my actions by a pretty picture whose architecture I want to put in place because there is no such thing, but guided by my values. If I see a question that touches on equality or democracy or non-exclusive self-determination, I will work for those without thinking, is this good or bad for this institutional arrangement, like the two-state arrangement, or is it not? I won't think that way because I don't believe any of them are worth struggling for in that architectural blueprint way. So getting into your piece in Time magazine, a lot of this piece deals with the figure of uh, Ziev Jabotinsky. So for people that don't know, maybe you could talk about who Jabotinsky was, what he believed, uh, especially with regards to the Iron Wall strategy, and how maybe he in some ways differs from uh, the people that are his sort of or considered his ideological heirs, the the sort yes. of Likud party in Israel, because uh, you argue that there is a difference between the two. Yes. Well, let's try going backward. Let's start with people want somebody that everybody knows about, namely Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu has been prime minister of Israel longer than anyone else. His father was an uh, also a part of the same movement that he is associated with in his in the history of Zionism, it's called the Revisionist Movement. That was a right-wing challenge to labor Zionist and middle-of-the-road uh, kind of capitalist liberal uh, uh, Zionists in the early 20th century. Revisionist Zionists want, were maximalist territorially. They did, were anti-socialist, and they did not believe in moving forward illegally by uh, establishing dunum by dunum, goat for goat, an, another settlement here or there. They wanted some large international formal political process. That's the classic position of the revisionists. Jabotinsky was the founder of that movement. He was followed by Menachem Begin, who was the leader of the Irgun, a terrorist Zionist organization before 1948. And uh, Begin's party First, it was called Cherut, which was what Irgun became after 1948. Cherut joined with the Liberal Party to become Gachal. Gachal finally entered a government in 1967, but didn't win an election until it was changed to a new name, Likud, in 1977, thanks to Ariel Sharon, who architected it. That party, Likud, therefore, traces itself all the way back to Jabotinsky. Now, who was Jabotinsky? He was a Russian Zionist, a very uh, educated, cosmopolitan uh, person, anti-socialist, liberal, very impressed with Germany and Italy in the sense of being impressed with discipline and uh, with pride, with national honor. 
but he was he had no uh, patience for dissembling and he had no patience for uh, treating problems for pretending problems were easier than they were so he could in the 1920s he wrote a famous article called on the iron wall we and the arabs in which he pointed out that despite what he called the vegetarians in our movement that is among the zionists who thought that the arabs of palestine would welcome us or sell their rights to the land for a mess of pottage he knew better and we all know better we're pretending ourselves to ourselves if we think that we don't have an, a deep conflict with the indigenous population and he called them the natives and he called jews coming to palestine alien settlers who had to expect resistance for uh, on the part of the local population said let's be real about it let's not let's stop telling ourselves what we pretend is true when we talk to the outside world real, real quick in that regard he's almost a figure that's saying to other zionists at the time don't delude yourself these arabs have a reason to very much dislike yes. us yeah and, and the corollary was so it's silly for some of our bleeding hearts to try to negotiate with the Arabs now, because then Arabs, if we were the Arabs, we would see there was nothing to negotiate about. We want their country and they know it. We want to transform their country and no, no one, not a Sioux, not a Papuan, no native people will negotiate. So what do we do since we absolutely in the long run need to be in Palestine and we need the Arabs to accept us in the long run, uh, otherwise we won't survive. This was his question and here is his answer. And the reason the answer is important is it because it was effectively accepted by Ben-Gurion and most of the rest of the Zionist movement. That is what they actually adopted as their policy toward the Arabs. So what was Jabotinsky's uh, position? It was, first, we must show the Arabs through military force that we cannot be destroyed. We have to build an iron wall. He actually thought that the iron wall would be made of British bayonets, not of Jewish soldiers, but he later uh, accepted the idea that the Iron Wall would be a Jewish army. He then said what would happen is that the Arabs would throw themselves against that Iron Wall repeatedly. That's what you would expect of a native population. But they would be repeatedly defeated, not just marginally, but drastically. Over time, after an accumulation of such crushing defeats, the Palestinian Arabs and the Arab world as a whole would split into moderates and extremists. The moderates would say, you know, we don't believe that Zionists have a right to be here, but we can't get rid of them. So we will negotiate with them. Whereas the extremists, the people Jabotinsky called the no-never community, they would have to be excluded. Zionists at that point would see the split in the Arab world and would negotiate with the moderates in order to isolate the extremists. That would result in an opportunity to reach an agreement, which he never specified in detail, but he said would be based on the principle of the nas of national equality between Jews and Arabs in the country, whether it was, uh, and it would be based on commitments by Jews never to expel the Arabs from the country. So, what happened was this, and that's where my article, uh, what people don't understand, that notion of the Iron Wall was adopted. 
Yeah, I call it a kind of violent pedagogy. You have to teach the Arabs that we can, that we the Zionists can be lived with, but we we can't be uh, gotten rid of. What Jabotinsky was brilliant at is realizing that the Arabs were normal, that they would act as a normal people. What he missed was that the Jews were also normal. That's a principle of Zionism, but he didn't realize that what a normal people does when it wins victory after victory over enemies is it doesn't keep the same demands that it started with. It expands them. So Jabotinsky expected of the Arabs as a normal people who would lose repeatedly that they would accept half a loaf because that would be better than nothing. That's how normal people, he thought, would respond to repeated defeats. He didn't realize that the response of a people like the Jews to repeated victories would be an expansion of their war aims. So that by the time you get to Netanyahu, the Iron Wall becomes, and he has a chapter in his book called The Iron Wall, just we fight them forever. There's no more pedagogy. There's no more uh, attempt to modulate the use of force so that in the long run, Jews and Arabs can see each other as partners. That, in that sense, Israel has completely abandoned the Iron Wall strategy of Jabotinsky in favor of a new strategy called mowing the lawn. When you mow the lawn, every three or four years, you go into Gaza or into Lebanon and you destroy an infrastructure of terror or you destroy capabilities to attack Israel. Then you don't operate on the intentions of the enemy, which is what Jabotinsky wanted to do to change their minds their cost-benefit analysis, you give up trying to change their minds. You just try to destroy as much as possible, as much as you can to inhibit their ability to attack you. That's, in a nutshell, the answer to your question. It's the, as you know, it's the basis for my article in time. It's not the article itself. So real quick in that regard, I mean, I think there's criticisms one can make of Jabotinsky, and that's for another discussion. But what you're saying is, at least Jabotinsky, regardless of what may one may think of his views or the Iron Wall strategy, there was an idea of, well, at the end of the, the road, there is some type of peace. Whereas yes. now, with the Likud party and figures like Netanyahu, there isn't an idea of peace at the end of the road. It's perpetual war, really. Well, that's that's right. I mean, it- uh, that's a terrible tragedy, uh, in my view. There's been an abandonment of the idea that we should restrain ourselves with the use of force because ultimately we cannot we cannot let our adversary think we're devils. We can't let them think that we're not able to be lived with. And yet that is precisely the uh, image that the current policies toward Gaza are producing – there was such an image of Israel in the Arab world uh, before 67. One of the interesting things about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, especially of the West Bank, is that after the occupation, Palestinians for the first time weren't experiencing Israel only as these retali- these vicious retaliation and reprisal raids from across the border. They could see Israeli society and they could see a lot of the soldiers who were normal people and who were treating them with a modicum of respect. So the image of Jews among Palestinians changed in the 60s and 70s, despite how much they opposed occupation. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s, the people who led the Intifada 
the first intifada were were very much interested in working with peace now working with uh, uh, allies in the jewish community in israel now we are returning to a period of arab opinion that is much more associated with the 1950s when it didn't seem that israel was a country you could live with and that's what i think the huge cost of this uh, current uh, so-called operation uh, swords of iron is uh, is is incurring from an Israeli point of view. One thing that has bothered me about um, this operation swords of iron is that I, I feel like the the goals aren't very uh, clearly put by Israel. Uh, I hear eradicate Hamas is the goal. Of, that's a very ambiguous goal of, but it's interesting at the end of your article, you say something that I haven't heard other people point out. You write an American order to stop is not what Israeli leaders fear. It is what they expect. Can you explain what you mean by that? And maybe uh, mm. the history of US interventions into uh, in stopping Israeli actions. So now we're getting into the meat of the article, which is that Essentially, no wars that Israel has been in, starting from 1948, have ever ended because Israeli war aims have been achieved, the official war aims. The, they have ended always because the superpower at the time, whether it was Britain in 1948, 49, or uh, Russia and the Soviet Union, United States in 56, or the United States almost uh, for every other war, told them, now you have to stop. The, the, and the metaphor that's almost always used in the literature on these different conflicts is stoplight. Is it a, it, usually at the beginning, the United States shows a green light in 67, in 73. Then the yellow light gets turned on. No, Israel, you're approaching the limits of what the United States can tolerate. Be careful. And then the question is, when will the red light get turned on? When will the United States either allow a Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire to be passed? Or well, when will it insist to Israel privately that it must now abide by the ceasefire resolution? Those are the things that always stop an, an Israeli war. Uh, because the Although the government will always promise the people that this time it'll be different, we will let the IDF win. We will uh, let the army do what it can finally. It knows it can't do that. All the discussions by the cognoscenti are, we only have a certain amount of time the United States is giving us. What should we do with that time? How much time will they give us? That's always the discussion, and it is the current discussion. Now, once... Here's what the audience needs to understand. Once the political class in Israel understands that that's the situation, then the incentives for the leadership are not to talk about war aims in any sensible way, but to talk about war aims with the idea that when the war ends, you want to be able to say that it was the United States that stopped me from gaining the war aims that I always wanted. Right. So we, we would have been Netanyahu. able to achieve these goals right. if only the U.S. had not exactly. intervened. So when Netanyahu adds objective after objective and condition after condition, it's only because he knows 
that they're not going to be achieved. And he wants to be able to say, well, if you look at what I said, I didn't want to, I was forced to stop the war. Uh, that So the inflation of war aims is, is actually of no, it's all political theater. It is not anything to do about when the war will actually stop. Now, there are, there are complicating factors all the time. In this particular war, one complicating factor is that there is a very strong desire among many in Israel, in the security establishment and in the government, to attack Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's the enemy that Israel has always resented for, for years because Israel has been deterred from acting in Lebanon because the Hezbollah has such a strong position. They have hundred and between 120 and 150,000 sophisticated missiles. And it will be a very costly battle. Israel is uncomfortable with that. They There were many in Israel, including some people who are thought to be moderate, who in the early stages of this current war wanted to stop the assault on Hamas and attack Lebanon because they thought there was a window of international opportunity for Israel to take care of its real enemy in Hezbollah and not Hamas. The United States stopped that. I believe that was one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, for Biden's visit to Israel. Uh, but I believe now that that desire by Israel, in the whether it's a bluff or a, or a real commitment to attack Lebanon, is keeping the United States from turning on the red light in Gaza, that there's a negotiation going on in which uh, Biden has to feel more and more what the costs of not stopping the war are to overcome what he thinks are the risks that if he forces Israel to stop in Gaza, they will attack Lebanon. It, it's a very complicated set of considerations that I think are happening now behind the scenes. But that's the key point, that the war will stop only when the United States tells it to stop, not be, uh, and and there are a variety of ways the United States can deliver that message, but we haven't done it yet. We're getting close, but we haven't done it. I also wanted to ask you uh, about the shift in Israeli politics since, I believe you put it at the late 1970s, um, and the rise of sort of an expansionist viewpoint, an expansionist viewpoint that believes in a greater Israel. Uh, I know you've done work on the settler movement uh, and and things of that nature. And also, I, I think it's important to understand the effect that this sort of expansionist viewpoint has had on everything, because, you know, it was a far right Israeli that assassinated Yitzhak Rabin uh, when the Oslo uh, peace process was happening. So. This has real ramifications, the Israeli political scene since the late 1970s. Well, for the time being, let's go back to the first Bush administration, the James Baker Bush administration. That was the most serious attempt by the United States to uh, corral Israel into a place that would kind of save Israel from itself, as George Ball put it, to and James Baker gave a very important speech to APAC, in which he called for an end to the to the the nightmare of greater Israel. The idea of greater Israel had to be brought to an end, and he was vilified for that. But that really was the point where uh, it was necessary. 
to rein in that impulse. That was an impulse that came about because ideologically, the party that replaced labor, labor uh, the Labor Party was exhausted politically, ideologically, uh, and humiliated by the 73 war. It, it, it's only natural that eventually it was going to be replaced by a party. The party that lay in wait was a right-wing expansionist party led by someone whose entire life had been committed to Jewish rule over the whole land of Israel, namely Menachem Begin. So uh, because the United States by that time was, after, the, after George Bush's administration, the uh, Israel lobby in the United States had a hammerlock on American policy. There was no way that anything that required real pressure on Israel would occur because of the domestic political costs. That allowed the right-wing government in Israel to tell Israelis that they could have their fantasy, they could have their cake and eat it too. They could have the greater land of Israel, they could have a kind of permanent occupation uh, with no political rights to Palestinians, and more than $3 billion a year in U.S. aid, and complete protection at the United Nations by the United States. All be And so that situation create, was effectively a cocoon that the United States spun around Israel at the point where it was controlled by right-wing groups. And it meant that uh, politicians who might have been moderate, moderate leaders of Israel, their careers were systematically destroyed by the disconfirmation of their argument year after year. Their argument was, we can't possibly stand up to the United States and the whole world and expect to keep the West Bank in Gaza and remain a Jewish state and get aid. We can't do that all. We're going to have to make peace with the Palestinians before we're forced to. They were all proven wrong. American administrations through Clinton, even through the second administration of Obama, certainly the second Bush administrations, were all willing to bend over backwards for Israel no matter what, because, well, just like Cuba, you're interested, you're, you're, uh, I, what, do you, what do you mean, people might ask, what do you mean just like Cuba? Well, think about this. There are two issues in American foreign policy, which are three standard deviations from the rest of the world completely different from the rest of the world. One is Israel. We uh, veto all of these things, which our allies and everyone but Samoa and maybe Guatemala uh, will vote for. What's the other issue like that? Cuba. On Cuba, 180 countries vote every year in October to end the embargo on Cuba. Only two countries vote against that, and that's the United States and Israel. It's funny that Israel votes that way, given that they're opposed to BDS, but that's another story. What do these two have in common, these two issues? They have nothing in common substantively. What they have in common is that there are two very powerful domestic political lobbies in the United States that care only about those issues. That shows that the decisive question for a president when it comes to a, almost every foreign policy issue is, will it kill me? Politically, domestically, or will people not care about it? If they don't care about it, I can do what the, what I want. If they do care about it, I have to listen to my domestic political uh, advisor when the rubber hits the road, and I have to make a tough decision about this question. When it comes to the um, Israel's domestic political scene and like internal divisions, I've heard some people uh, paint it as you know 
the state of Judea versus the state of Israel is sort of yeah. the internal divide. Uh, a lot of Palestinians will say to me, well, th those divisions don't matter to me because nothing is is changing for us as Palestinians. So what would you say to them? Why is it important maybe to look at those divisions historically? Those divisions used to be crucial. I agree. Back in the good old days of the 1970s and 80s, in the 1980s, uh, there was an oscillation. You know, there was an election in 1984. There was an election in 1989. And different parties would win, or there'd be a two-headed monster. But it, if the Likud won, it would be a right-wing annex, you know, settlement-heavy government. If labor won, there'd be attempts, if Shimon Peres was prime minister, attempts to negotiate with Jordan, or if Rabin was prime minister, attempts to negotiate with the PLO, then back to Netanyahu. So you had a kind of oscillation. Think of it as if in the 70s and 80s, Israel was like Pennsylvania or uh, North Carolina. It's a purple state. In the 50s, it was a blue state. You know, it was, in, in many respects, social democratic, and it didn't have an internal Palestinian problem like the West Bank and Gaza. Now it's Oklahoma. It's Idaho. It's a deeply red state. So there's hardly anything left of the Israeli dovish liberal Zionist left. There's almost nothing. It has virtually no representation in parliament. The Labour Party in current polls doesn't even make it into the parliament. And... Uh, the, it's, it, whatever liberal Zionist groups exist, they are now flocking to make alliances with the Arab parties who are stronger than they are. So what we're talking about is, from the point of view of Palestinians, they're right. There now are not nearly the, the divisions that there used to be over the future of the West Bank and Gaza, for example. Now, there are divisions in Israel. There are divisions over whether it's going to be a religious uh, state or a state that has liberal aspects. It's uh, divisions uh, over capitalism and socialism. What, but there's not really a division over whether the country's going to be divided between Jews and Arabs. It's not going to be divided. So the opportunities for political maneuvering that we've seen with Arab parties now joining governments in Israel is because no one thinks that there's going to be a two-state negotiated solution. Therefore, both the right and the left will actually allow Arabs in their coalitions because uh, it's not going to mean uh, any change in the geographical extent of Israel. So my, my own argument is in the long run, the opportunities for change have to do with Jews who don't want to live under a ultranationalist, messianic, or kind of 18th century uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox domination, joining with Palestinians who feel the same way and who want political emancipation so that they can participate in the government that rules them. And that includes Palestinians living in the West Bank and in Gaza. Now, that that's the same kind of question that whites in the North had to get used to thinking that blacks, former slaves, were actually the crucial political allies and not people who were either irrelevant, distasteful, or illegitimate as partners in their political community. And that takes a long time.
in regards to what you mentioned about uh, liberal Zionism, I find it interesting that today figures that are at the forefront of, of calling themselves liberal Zionists, uh, someone like, say, Anat Wilf, will essentially, I mean, I'll use Wilf as, as the example here. I've seen Wilf say that, you know, we could have a two-state, but the problem is Palestinian rejectionism. She's even gone so far as to say that the reason the settlement enterprise goes on is because of Palestinian rejectionism, which I'm, it's confusing argument that she makes in that regard. Um, I feel as if that doesn't give the Palestinian side enough credit. And I, I think uh, we see this when people talk about Camp David 2000. I just saw Hillary Clinton say, well, you know, Arafat, uh, turned down a good deal. It's all the Palestinians' fault. You know, it's all Palestinian rejectionism. That is why uh, there can't be a two-state. Uh, how would you respond to people who push that viewpoint, this is all on the Palestinians? I, I would... <laughs> First of all, those arguments are irrelevant now anyway. They were, they're old arguments. Those are arguments that cover up the reality that no matter who's to blame for the absence of the possibility of a two-state solution, it is absent. And now you have to figure out how to live in one state. So uh, get used to that and figure out, do you want to just dominate people or do you want to uh, eventually look forward to a democracy in which everybody who is ruled by a, a government participates in it? So that's that's number one. But number two, anyone who wants for historical or psychological or spiritual reasons to go into uh, whether it was the Israelis or the Palestinians who said no more times or were more rejectionist, all they have to do is is study the actual sources and not study the casual sources. Barack and Clinton and uh, President Clinton all betrayed what they had promised to Arafat and came uh, and blamed him for something that they promised him would not happen if he only would agree to come to Camp David. It was a trap for him, which he fell into against the advice of his advisors. It's not to say that the Palestinians haven't missed some opportunities, but it is the it is always the uh, the side with more power that gets to decide where negotiating possibilities go. And Netanyahu was very clear that he was going to destroy the Oslo process by redefining it not as a partnership for searching for a way to make peace, but as a a set of rules that he could use to blame Palestinians for not abiding by the rules and therefore liberating him. And the way he would do that is to exploit the fact that there was no formal limit on settlement so he could settle infinitely uh, the West Bank. Uh, so those those arguments are just specious. If anyone wants one source, I challenge them to read the Palestine Papers, which were the leaked minutes of negotiations that were taking place during the Bush and the Obama administration between Americans, Palestinians, and Israelis. And they are the transcripts of those negotiations. And you can see, reading them over and over and over again, how far the Palestinians and the Americans are stretching to try to find a way forward, how Israelis under Netanyahu would lead them down the garden path and then shut the negotiations off whenever it looked like there was a promising way to uh, pursue. So that, and anyone who thinks otherwise just does not know the record. So the Palestine Papers, just read those. Uh, uh, Swisher is the editor of them, Clayton Swisher. I also wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we've talked about in our last conversation 
uh, Palestine, or Gaza, uh, specifically Gaza, as being an open air prison and Hamas being like a prison gang that broke out on October 7th and caused mayhem. Um, I don't necessarily want you to reiterate that point uh, because my listeners can listen to the previous interview we did a few months ago about that. But what happens to the prison now and after the war? What are, what are uh, you know, Israel's plans for the Gaza well, prison? Yeah. Yeah. What I've been saying is this. I mean, I don't, I, I've been making a forecast about what's going to happen. And if your listeners want to hear it, I mean, it might be repeating something I said before, but I think it's interesting that I think it's starting, to, you're starting to see it already. As I've said, there's no two-state solution that can be reached, but that doesn't mean that uh, people won't, we won't see a recrudescence of two-state negotiations. All the parties in Europe, American politicians who are looking for a safe political harbor, Israelis who want a way out of the mess with some pretense of respectability, and Palestinians who are desperate for anything that they can get, including international aid, will agree to, uh, to talking about talking about whether we're going to talk about a two-state solution through negotiations. In those processes, when the fighting stops to an extent, to the extent that it will, or when the United States brings it to a halt, they'll, they'll begin. And they'll take years before they grind to a halt. There'll be some kind of interim arrangement for Gaza, which won't work because the Israelis will uh, argue that the international community is uh, endangering Israeli security by allowing too much concrete in, and that they can't. And the international community will say it's impossible to rebuild Gaza under the security conditions that Israel is imposing. And after, with the most extreme elements of the Israeli political scene on the right saying, oh, the international community is working with Moss or something of that nature. Yeah, but yeah. At the same time, those same people are saying the international community should should accept a million Palestinian refugees into their countries, uh, whereas Israel, is, which is where these people are from, uh, is not offering to take them out of Gaza and return them to uh, their lands inside around the Gaza Strip, which is where most of them are from. But uh, my point is that after four years, the prison will reemerge. You'll it'll be Israel will will return to what the situation was prior to October seventh. Uh, what I just saw today, a report in the Israeli press. That one of the emphases now in Israel's description of its war aims, and you can take them for uh, with a grain of salt, as I said, but what they're what they're emphasizing now is control of the Philadelphia corridor. That is, it used to be in the old prison system that Egypt had some access through Rafah to Gaza. Now Israel's saying it doesn't want Egypt to have any access, so there would be a more hermetic sealed off prison than it was before. Uh, in fact, Israel is also talking about a buffer zone inside the Gaza Strip all around it, which would make the prison smaller and more hermetically sealed. So if anything, what we're talking about is a return to a, a, a higher level of security in the prison. Now, now, that's what the situation would extrapolate to uh, without any real important kind of diplomacy happening, something I don't expect to happen, but which theoretically could happen. I feel like one thing listeners need to take away from this conversation, and it's been reiterated in other interviews I've done on this ongoing series about Israel-Palestine, uh, especially from 
the historian Rashid Halidi, there is no military solution to this. I, I think the solution is political. It's a political problem. Could you comment on that? Yes, that's the fundamental reason why uh, the dynamic has been what I described it as. Israel, Israeli governments have to say that the military can solve the problem, but it can't solve the problem because the fundamental problem that Zionism created in the Middle East, in a region that it did not want, a Jewish country, is a political problem. It's a deep political problem. That's what Jabotinsky realized. There has to be some kind of compromise, political compromise. If it can't be dividing the land, then it has to be dividing authority over the land. Israelis, Jews don't want to do that, but if they don't, if they don't bite that bullet, they'll they'll be in this endless cycle of wars. Now, the United States makes it possible for them to remain in that cycle because we will give them the ammunition and the arms and the political leeway. And they can win every tactical encounter, but at a tremendous cost of moral, spiritual, political contamination of their lives inside the country and of their status internationally. So, so I agree with Rashid. This, and in fact, that was in my article as well. This is a political problem. That is why, the uh, although the government can say the military is going to deliver a victory, it will not. And it needs the United States to stop the war. Real briefly, just a, a few more brief questions here. Do you think there's an awareness of that in parts of Israeli political life, that this is a political problem? Do you think that's emerging or? Well, he, you know, it's it, it doesn't emerge as a publicly acknowledged fact. It emerges, in, in fact, the, the press in Israel today is as devoid of serious thinking as I've ever seen it. Usually you can find a wide array of deep and critical uh, speculation and discussion. Not today. There's very little in the Israeli press that's not uh, Orwellian almost in its treatment of this war. Uh, but deep down, Israelis do feel what you're saying is true. They feel they're living in a uh, in a dangerous and uh, almost impossible situation. The, when I ask Israelis, and I've been asking Israelis this question for 25 or 30 years, tell me a future for the country that you like and that you think is possible. It used to be in the 90s, you could get a lot of Israelis to say, well, there could be a two-state solution and et cetera, et cetera. That's fine with me. And uh, we'll visit the West Bank. And, but since the collapse of Oslo, it's extremely difficult to find Israelis who can answer that question. It can't even answer it. Tell me a future that you like and you think is possible. And that's scary for Israelis because they have to think that their children are going to be living in this country. Now, Israelis have a deep set of social connections to one another. It's a very tight world. It's very difficult for Israelis to leave that world. But the pressures uh, will be stronger and stronger, not just on Palestinians in Gaza to leave, but on Israelis. Just two more questions. Uh, I was listening to another interview that you did recently where you talked about uh, Trump's 
plan when it came to Israel-Palestine. And you said in pretty much all aspects, it was pretty laughable, except for one aspect. And I think it was involving the Green Line. I don't know if you can talk about Trump's plan and what well, you thought. The Trump, the Trump plan, I'm probably one of the few people on the planet who've read all 55 pages in detail. But it's really what, you know, in one sentence, what the plan is, is first we let the Israelis tell us when they think Palestine is ready for a state. And then we'll agree that they can design the state that it should be. Okay, that's the plan. But when the map that shows the uh, the final uh, way things should be, the map of Palestine that it is hoped that Israel will agree to, when all these twenty conditions are met, and Israel be and Palestine becomes Finland, uh, one of the aspects of the map that's fascinating are these areas in the Israeli Negev that are transferred to the Palest to Palestine. They are areas near the border with Egypt in the southwestern Negev that are supposed to be where Palestinian refugees from Gaza will be moved to or will set up industrial zones. This is the first plan since 1948 that I have ever seen that involves the mass return of Palestinians inside of the Green Line that an Israeli government has received with favor. So it's the one thing in the Trump plan that's actually had some promise, because as I mentioned, the area around Gaza in that Northwest is where most of the refugees in Gaza were from. And it's pretty underpopulated. And so if you're looking for a way to improve conditions in what the racist minister in Israel, Ben Gvir, is called the ghetto of Gaza. He used that word. If you want to rehabilitate that ghetto, let those people come back and rebuild communities all along this underinhabited area of uh, southwestern Israel. That's what Trump was suggesting. I also wanted to ask you here quickly. Um, you know, I hear a lot of different voices and pundits saying, you know, the, the problem is that Iran has been meddling, you know, these Iranian proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, the Houthis. Um, and I feel like sometimes there's this notion expressed that if Iran just disappeared into the mist tomorrow, all these problems would go away. And I think that's um, a very foolish and naive view. I, I want your take on that. Uh, well, as, as folks may know, before the uh, Muslim revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran, Israel and the Shah were tightly connected. And of course, there was no peace between Israel and the, Arab, and the Middle East uh, at that time. Uh, the Shah, Israel also has had ties with the, the regime uh, at the same time that Reagan uh, was involved in sending arms to the Contras with Iranian help. The Israelis were part of that deal. So uh, what you're seeing for the most part has been an inflation of the Iranian threat by Netanyahu to try to uh, create a bogeyman for the West that could justify and obscure, justify ignoring the Palestinian problem. Now, Iran itself uses, there's no question about it, uses the en its enmity with Israel to build itself up into the great power it wants to be in the region. And it kind of, you can't ignore the fact that it's a powerful country, a rich country that is a great power in the region. The uh, And it has successfully reached, used the Israeli-Arab conflict 
to ins insinuate itself all over the region, wherever they are heterodox Muslim sects in Syria, in, uh, in Lebanon, in Yemen, and so on. But Israel is the one that opened up those opportunities by wars in Lebanon that destroyed delicate political arrangements there that could not pass and, and, and that were replaced by these extremely militant Shia organizations, uh, especially Hezbollah, which replaced Amal. So there's there's plenty of blame to go around here, but it it I do not believe for an instant that Iran is the problem for Israel in the Middle East. It is not. It is mainly uh, it is mainly an excuse. It no no serious Israeli national security expert believes that Iran will attack. Israel with nuclear weapons. The problem that Israel faces is that without a vision of the future of peace that it can find acceptable, the only thing it can rely on is the use of force at will, at, at no cost, essentially. The United States helps them do that, but that's why Lebanon is such a problem. They cannot use their air force in Lebanon without risking a war that they can't accept. And if Iran had a nuclear weapon, that would make it impossible for Israel to use its military the way it has always used it, without thinking that there are risks that are intolerable to using it. Once a nuclear weapon gets introduced into the equation, Israel has to start thinking about what risks it's taking. And that exposes the costs of not having a political plan for the future. So the, the, the bogeyman of Iran, and Iran is definitely causing problems, but the its importance as a political bogeyman. The reason Netanyahu was so set on destroying an American-Iranian relationship and destroying the nuclear deal was because it did not want to be faced with a Middle East in which it could not use uh, uh, force without risk. Yeah, I, I guess what I meant was that even, even if there wasn't an Iran meddling in some way, shape, or form, uh, there would still be Palestinian resistance to of course, uh, of course. But now let, let I, I want your listeners and your viewers to understand that the real struggle for Palestinians now is not people's war. It's it's really a struggle over how do you democratize a country that is is partially democratic, but ex has excluded huge portions of the population it rules. So instead of thinking Algeria, how do we throw out or are instead of thinking India, Pakistan, think the United States, think Britain. How do you democratize, or South Africa, how do you democratize a country where huge proportions of its population, sometimes they're women or they're blacks or they're Catholics or they're Jews, how do you move so that the democracy extends to everyone? And it doesn't work through straight negotiations. It works through much slower, more complicated ways. Men and women never got together and negotiated, and the men decided, okay, you women, we, we agree, now you can vote. The men split. They, some men need the votes of women to support them against other men. They emancipate women. The women struggle. That's how blacks get uh, power also. That's ultimately what can happen in Israel, but it's a long struggle. Very last thing, I promise to let you go after this, but uh, I wanted to ask you about the ICJ case um, involving yes. South African claims of uh, Israel committing genocide. Now, I've had guests on who will say they think it's a genocide. People like Raz Segal 
I've had other people on like Omar Bartov who will say I'm cautious to call it that. Uh, I think I know where you stand on this, but I, I think there's an issue happening now where we're almost getting too bogged down in whether this is or isn't a genocide. In any case, I mean, we're seeing a mass killing, but that's my view. Maybe you can give yours. Yeah, well, I think the last thing is, is very important. That there's a legal question as to what the definition of genocide is. But what's important is when you get a word like genocide or or colonialism, okay, uh, that's politically everybody knows whether it's good or bad. That means it becomes much more important as a political question than an than a analytic question. Is it genocide? Because there's a political weight to call it using the genocide language or racist. That's the question is political, not analytic. Now, I believe that when you look at the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, I've done some work for the Holocaust Museum. They don't study just whether they're they're trying to prevent genocide. OK, that's one of the, uh, the missions of their organization, but they don't define it by it has to be like the Holocaust. No, if they're mass atrocities, they try to prevent those. I was in a in a project trying to predict which countries would be more likely to be susceptible to mass atrocities. So they're interested in genocidal levels of violence against innocents, not genocide per se. And I think that it's perfectly understandable why people would use genocidal as a adjective when the, uh, in this context for what Israel is doing in Gaza because of several things. Number one, the definition of genocide, the legal definition of genocide, it doesn't require that the entire population that's targeted be wiped out, or even if there's an attempt to wipe out the entire population, only that there's an attempt to destroy part of the population and that there's some expressed intent associated with that. And when Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, calls the Palestinians, this puts them in the category of Amalek, which is the tribe in the Bible that God told the Jews to annihilate whenever they can to erase the memory, even the knowledge of Amalek, because they had attacked the Israelites in the desert. Everyone in Israel knows that's a genocidal commandment. He is he and other ministers have used that. So it's not unreasonable to bring that question to the international court. I don't know how they'll decide it, but I don't I know I used to say, no, you shouldn't use that word. Now, I, I still don't use it myself, but I can understand why it's being used as an adjective as opposed to a noun. I'm waiting for the court to decide whether it's a noun or not, but it, the violence is definitely adjectively genocidal. What do you think out of curiosity when people respond to Netanyahu's omelette comments by saying, what I hear people say uh, to defend him is they'll say he's actually talking about Hamas. He's not talking about all Palestinians. Um, but I feel like we have multiple statements from various Israeli officials where the line feels very blurry between, you know, what they consider Hamas and what they consider. So it's, it's like when Israel says they may say Zionists, but they're talking about Jews. Okay, but no, well, they may say Palestinians, but, you know, they're really just talking about Hamas. Well, it depends. It's the same kind of question. Uh, sometimes people who are talking about Hamas really are just talking about Hamas. 
Sometimes they really are talking about Palestinians. Sometimes people are talking about Zionists really are talking about Jews. And sometimes they're talking about only Zionists, whether they're Jewish or not. I personally, as a scholar, I'm looking at the context to make sure I understand exactly what the referent is. And when I listen carefully to what Netanyahu is saying, when he uses, uh, he is not talking about Hamas. He is, he is, and his audience doesn't think it, that he is either. He's talking about the Palestinian population in Gaza. Well, I want to thank you again, Ian Lustig, for coming back on Parallax Views. What do you want to say in closing? Uh, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? Well, first of all, let me offer a hope that this is the last interview we do during the war. I, I hope that it can, you know, the fighting can stop, the violence can stop. This is a... a do you, a do you think we're coming towards the intervention point where the U.S. comes yes. in? Or okay. Yes, I do. But it, I'm, Bernie Sanders has got a very important... A piece of legislation, uh, a resolution in the Senate today, I probably won't pass, but it should pass. It calls for an investigation of whether American arms are being used to commit war crimes before more ammunition and arms are sent to Israel. That's the State Department would have to do a study and report on that. That's the minimum that the United States should be doing. And uh, that's one of the positive things that's happening in Washington today. I just like to mention that and I look forward to talk to you again perhaps on a happier uh, subject. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ian Lustig. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, it is really you, the listener, that can help to keep this show going through a donation on Patreon. Or if you want, you can email me and send me a donation by PayPal. We can work that out as well. In any case, I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. But otherwise, this show is listener supported. So if you can, kick me some cash at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not a 